Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to 21st Century School's third seminar in the series on Getting to Zero. And we're moving from nuclear weapons to poverty today. Uh, I'm delighted to have Professor Tony Venables uh, as our discussant, uh, as our lead and seminar lecturer. And uh, he knows uh, a lot about this from many different perspectives. He's currently the VP Professor of Economics here. He was formerly a Professor of Economics at LSE. He's written widely uh, on development economics, on trade, on spatial economics, uh, including with um, Paul Krugman, who got the Nobel Prize last year. And uh, he was most recently the Diffid Chief Economist Department for International Development. So working on the coalface of uh, development as well as in, uh, in theory. A tremendous combination has also been a colleague at the World Bank of mine in the past uh, as well. So uh, delighted to welcome you and uh, look forward to your presentation and discussion afterwards. Good, thank you again. Um, uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yes, I um, came up with a title here, which I suppose is a bit of a nod in the direction of this uh, going to zero theme, uh, and a bit of a nod in the direction of my distinguished uh, colleague, Professor Collier. I'm not quite sure if it makes any sense, but anyway, I was just trying to, to signal, <laughs> signal a few things and sort of uh, genuflect in a few directions or something. So um, that's the title. Yeah, what I want to talk about is uh, development economics uh, as a whole, and in particular, the objective, uh, the means, some of the policy instruments and problems in reducing world poverty. Should I have said eliminating? Anyway, heading towards zero uh, on, on uh, world poverty. So I'm going to organise the talk uh, along those, uh, the, 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 the lines of those, those four bullets. Uh, we have to start a little bit by uh, some sort of conceptual measurement uh, issues, I think. I don't want to spend very long on that, obviously, uh, on, on, on poverty, what the objective is here. Then it's going to be a pretty uh, economistic-focused uh, talk. Uh, I hope you won't be surprised to, to hear. So economic uh, growth and the importance thereof uh, as the primary means for eliminating uh, poverty. Uh, but then, of course, you can say that uh, easy, easier said than done. So the actual mechanisms, policy issues, um, levers that need to be pulled uh, if, if economic growth is going to get to anything like the sort of rates uh, required to elim eliminate poverty within uh, a few generations rather than many, many generations. And then, of course, uh, the obstacles. Uh, as, as you all know, some, some regions of the world have been, uh, are being successful, uh, others much less so. So that's a, that's a quick overview of uh, what I'm going to be doing. Let me go straight in to um, the first point there. Uh, concepts and measurements. What, are, what actually are we talking about um, when we talk about poverty? Now, of course, when I heard the you know, going to zero stuff, yeah, my first reaction was, oh, well, you know, poverty is all relative, isn't it? In which case, the notion of going to zero uh, makes, makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but obviously stopping at that, it would have been a short seminar, not exactly in, 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 in the spirit of the event. Uh, but of course, it is a very important point that, uh, you know, we, I mean, countries have uh, poverty measures. Uh, people, philosophers, individuals 
uh, think, think about poverty uh, in, in different ways. Um, should we think of it as an absolute measure uh, or, or a relative measure? Well, for the purposes of this talk, um, yeah, of necessity, I have to think of it uh, as, as an absolute measure. Uh, so some, some notion uh, of absolute po poverty, not just relative poverty within society. Okay, but then what, 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 what are we measuring? What, what, what do we care about? How do, how do we measure it? Now, I want to keep this discussion short at this stage, but uh, worth, worth raising a few points. Do we think of it, uh, can, can, we, can we get by adequately uh, with some sort of monetary measure uh, of, of poverty? Now, the best known measures are the World Bank's uh, dollar a day and two dollar a day measures of absolute poverty. Uh, and indeed, some of the figures um, I'm going to show you, um, the spirit of what I'm going to be saying is very much, I, I, I think, aimed at the dollar a day measure of poverty. You know, the number of people who are below a dollar a day, uh, above a dollar a day. Let me say a couple of things about that. First, you know, there, there, there is inflation in the world, so a dollar a day is now a dollar twenty-five a day. People still usually call it the dollar a day measure, but clearly it was set in the early nineties. So it's now a dollar twenty-five. It's a purchasing power parity, so don't you know take it literally in terms of what you could buy in Britain with a dollar a day. Um, yeah, relative, relative price structures are very different uh, in, in developing countries. But where does it come from, this uh, sort of notion of uh, a dollar a day? Well, what the World Bank researchers did um, was look at national poverty lines uh, as set by local governments, uh, in, by, by national governments uh, in countries around the world, and tried to form a sort of consensus view as to what governments, you know, how, how governments set their poverty lines. And of course, if you look at high-income countries, they set relative poverty, poverty measures. They, they, you know, the British government thinks in relative poverty terms and then sets the measure that way. But as they looked across countries, you know, a lot of low-income countries, a lot of developing countries, were using a measure that in the early 90s, whatever it was, looked like about a dollar a day. So that's where this notion came from. It actually came from, 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 from countries. Uh, an attempt to sort of summarise, synthesise out what countries seem to be using and then take it as this uh, international standard. So, I suppose the objective is to go to zero number of people on less than a dollar or dollar twenty-five purchasing power parity uh, a day. Of course that's a monetary measure. You may or may not be happy with using a sort of summary uh, monetary measure like that. Yeah, does the money you have adequately capture the opportunities that are open to you in society? Uh, does it capture um, access to justice, um, fairness, all, all, all opportunities or not? So clearly there are big debates about that uh, that, I, that I really don't want to dwell on. I'm sure other people in the room know more about than I do. But you might certainly want to complement monetary measures with uh, outcome indicators of one sort or another. So actually looking at the health of individuals, uh, nutritional status, educational attainment, whatever. And of course, there are yeah, lots of internationally comparable measures of these things that get produced. There's the Human Development Index, which is a composite of income per capita, um, 
educational attainment and life expectancy, I think. Um, so that's a measure of, of human development produced uh, across countries rather than uh, at the individual level. Um, there are Millennium Development Goals, which are set with much you know, shorter-run targets uh, in mind, but nevertheless measures of progress towards reducing poverty. Uh, millennium Development Goals, whole, whole set of uh, criteria. But, but, but outcomes, hu human um, you know, education, health uh, outcome indices. One other comment on what, what we're measuring, how we think about poverty, um, as I say, without going very deeply into it. One, one, one other comment on it. We're measuring uh, lifetime poverty or instantaneous poverty. Well, clearly we're measuring instantaneous poverty because we don't have data on individuals right through, uh, you know, track individuals right through their lives. But arguably we should be much more concerned with lifetime well-being of an individual. Yeah, many of us might have periods where you're, you know, you're, you're below a dollar a day for a short period. Um, you know, people fluctuate through their lives. So one other conceptual issue to bear in mind. Okay, huge area, that's all I want to say about it. Um, eliminating poverty, going to uh, less than one dollar, uh, to reducing the number of people on less than a dollar, dollar twenty-five a day, uh, whatever. Let's just uh, you know, summarize recent history uh, and where we are. So there are um, millions of people on the vertical axis uh, and uh, you know, the broad country aggregates. So what do you see? South Asia, number of people below $1.25, basically not changing very much. Uh, you're around about 600 million, uh, staying that way. Sub-Saharan Africa increasing uh, over the period. Uh, beginning to turn down, and I'll come back to that slide at the end, there's a little wrinkle of turn down at the, 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 at the far end there, but Sub-Saharan Africa increasing. <coughs> Obviously the really dramatic improvements uh, in East Asia and the Pacific. Yeah, China, uh, towards the end of the time period here, really pulling that down, but before that, uh, other, other Asian economies. So looking at that, yeah, numbers below $1.25, falling by... Um, whatever it is, uh, half a billion people or so. So that's completely unprecedented success uh, in you know, recent decades of reducing poverty. So the starting point, in a sense, really is rather optimistic. You know, it's an un historically quite, quite unprecedented uh, rate of world poverty reduction. And of course, these are absolute numbers of people. So world population went up by, I guess, um, what are we talking about? certainly more than 2 billion uh, during that period. So in proportionate terms, um, yeah, a lot more went on. Right? These are the absolute numbers, uh, that, that against the background of you know, vast increases in, in, in population. Uh, so uh, an impressive starting point. And as I said, I'll return to that as we try and uh, look, look to the future. But obviously having that starting point is necessary. Okay, that's where we're starting from. Uh, we're concerned for the sake of this talk with absolute poverty, dollar a day. What's the basic driver of uh, poverty reduction? Answer, economic growth. Now people think, oh well, we can do it by redistributing income, but you can't. In a poor country, there's not enough income to redistribute. So it's, it's, it's increasing the size of the pot, basically is it's the driver of long-run uh, poverty reduction. Um, 
No, and yeah. No apologies for that. I mean, focus on economic growth is is is, is what it has to be. But of course, you know, growth is is is, is not is not an end in itself. Uh, it, it, it's a means to an end. So what I've done here is just pull together some little sort of estimated simulated numbers uh, on the basis of many, many studies that have been done trying to link outcomes to income levels. Yeah, so obviously there are studies uh, relating maternal mortality to levels of per capita income, under five mortality, uh, government tax revenues, all these things. Yeah, we know they all increase with income, but at different rates, at different responsiveness of these, these, these things to per capita income. But the point I'm trying to make here is, yeah, growth is the driver of poverty reduction in the dollar 25 cents, but also in terms of these outcome variables. So, you know, suppose you were growing at, you know, 0.5% per person uh, per year. So pretty, pretty abysmal, although, you know, better than Africa through the sort of 70s and 80s, right? Um, yeah, then income per head would grow in 10 years, just over 5%. Um, Poverty headcount would go down round about 10%, not percentage points, 10%, okay? Um, very small falls in maternal mortality, and well, you can see, see, see the numbers across the row. But of course, what I want to make, yeah, growth is, 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 is everything here, right? Uh, get to per capita growth rates of 4%, so <coughs> total growth rate is sort of six, six and a half in Africa with population increase. Um, that's obviously all compounding. Uh, yeah, you're halving uh, poverty headcount. So when I say headcount, that's the absolute number of people uh, below your dollar a day. Right, you're halving that within a 10-year period. So, yeah, dramatic. Halving maternal mortality, a bit less dramatic on some of these things. Um, you're increasing tax revenue a little bit more than you're increasing income. So you're getting some, some action there to finance uh, health education. And of course, you know, compound growth is a marvellous thing. You know, seven and a half percent per capita and uh, these really dramatic numbers. Through. So what I'm trying to say here is, yeah, we're going to use dollar twenty-five. we're going to talk about that. But we know from the econometric studies, all these studies, that, it, it, that the rising per capita income maps through into things um, on average. And there are statistical studies, so it's, it's on average. Let me just bang on the sort of points about the power of compound growth uh, on one more slide. This, this is sort of redundant, I kind of said that on the previous slide. But, 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 but let me just keep emphasizing uh, the importance of growth here. These are a couple of charts um, tracking per capita incomes. This is actually in dollars, that's an index. Sorry, not, not comparable, but anyway. Um, for regions of the world or countries that have had very different performances over the last couple of decades. So here you have uh, low-income countries as a whole, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, dismal, I mean, it's per capita, dismal increase over a 40-year period, well, barely an increase at all over a 40-year period, as compared to East Asia and Pacific, where its incomes, per capita incomes increased by a factor of 10. So really I'm just sort of banging on about compound growth here. Um, but the, 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 the difference in performance of different countries is, is startling. And of course, it's, uh, you can do it at the national level, right? Two, two countries that share, share a common border, 
just about uh, in Africa. Zambia, sort of, you know, fairly genteel decline uh, for 40 years. Uh, as a neighboring country, uh, Botswana raised incomes by a factor of 10 to be a you know, middle income, possibly even upper middle income country uh, after that, that, that period of growth. So, yeah, this message again. Uh, the power of compound growth, uh, poverty, serious poverty reduction is possible, right? Uh, but not everyone's done it. Okay, so growth matters. What drives economic growth? Uh, long debated uh, subject uh, with uh, uh, Ian, Ian smiling with uh, yeah, if, if, if only we knew I wouldn't be here um, but we have learned we have learned a lot uh, we don't say it's easy and can be achieved but we've learned a lot that's something I want to, want to talk about for, for the rest of the talk um, the World Bank uh, commissioned uh, a group of the great and the good, uh, the Commission on Growth and Development, to actually try and pull together and synthesize and uh, use their wisdom to say things about uh, the determinants of, uh, of economic growth. So they set up this Commission on Growth and Development. It was chaired by Michael Spence, a Nobel laureate in economics, and they had assorted uh, ex-presidents and ex-prime ministers uh, from around the world uh, on it. They focus particularly on the really successful countries, uh, this lot, and I don't. So th these are the 13, I think, countries that were real, real high performers for a period. So they, fo they, they focused on those countries, but the, the messages they, they drew out were, 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 were broader than that, I think. So I'm going to draw on, um, you know, I'm not going to be inventing new stuff here, a lot of what I'm going to be doing is just drawing on some of the messages. From, from that Growth Commission, the, the Commission on Growth and Development. Now, they summarised their messages in what they're absolutely horrible, just the sort of PowerPoint I hate, right? You know, five balls round a pentangle, whatever it is. Um, but let me say, let me run round them briefly and then uh, elaborate on each, although in a slightly different structure. The main messages from this on what it takes to deliver growth. Yeah, openness to the world economy, and I'll, I'll elaborate on one of these. Uh, Macroeconomic stability, uh, future orientation, which is quite a nice phrase, but what they really meant was high investment, high saving. Uh, market allocation systems, learning prices, guide things, and leadership, leadership. Um, so these are the sort of five points that I want to, want to go around in a, in a slightly different way and try and sort of draw out uh, put a bit more detail and structure uh, on those. Let me start with um, future orientation. So, uh, investment and saving. So, what does it take um, to get the sort of growth rates? We know that you know different rates translate huge differences in levels uh, over a time period. What does it take? Okay, message one from the Growth Commission: high rates of saving and investment. Worth doing uh, a little bit of sort of uncomfortable arithmetic here. Yeah, if you want to be growing at the sorts of rates that are gonna, gonna sort of double income in a generation or less, well, yeah, it's still a long time, but if you want to be growing at those sorts of rates, then basically you need to be saving, getting on for half your income, right? 
So scale, yeah, an, an uncomfortable uh, arithmetic. Let me, let me actually, I think it's worth briefly trying to explain that. Um, how much capital do you need uh, to produce, what, what capital stock do you need to produce $100 uh, of output in a year? Well, at the national level, it's probably four or $500, right? So if you want to grow your income at 10%, um, then you've got to increase your capital. You know, if your income is $100, you want to grow it. I'm going to get this out of the example wrong, aren't I? Um, basically, with a, if it's that capital to output ratio is, say, five, then the saving has to be five times the increase in income that you want. You've got to build up that much capital, you've got to do it by saving, right? And some will depreciate, so it's actually worse than that. So, if, you know, typical countries, capital output ratio is four, five, whatever. So if you're going to grow at 10%, you're going to be saving 40 or 50%. Or more because of depreciation. So there's an uncomfortable uh, arithmetic in that. You know, China can do that, but the idea that poor countries can, can save that amount is, um, well, most don't put it that way. Okay, so the supply of savings then is typically not going to be large enough to generate those sorts of uh, growth rates. Thinking about the supply side, there's big, if not other old literature, on, on the notion of poverty traps. So you're poor, so you can't save enough, so you don't grow fast enough, so you're poor. So you're locked in a, a trap just because you're being poor doesn't enable you to save enough. That's a rather sort of you know, old-fashioned uh, literature on that, I think. But one with important insights, nevertheless, uh, at the country level, more particularly perhaps at the household level. Right? Um, you know, can households save enough to spend, send their children to school? Well, yeah, possibly not. If you, if you go to a country like Malawi and to think of the sort of agricultural situation there, yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of Africa, agricultural yields are about what they were in Europe during the time of the Roman Empire. So you know there's sort of low-hanging fruit. You know, why can't they use uh, yeah, better seeds, fertilizers? But to some extent, oh, it's a complicated set of issues. To some extent, it, it's the poverty trap, right? Yeah, just getting the fertilizers and the seeds for that first year is very expensive. And you know, you've got to eat, so you can't afford it. So you're locked in a sort of low level without the supply of savings to produce the new seeds, varieties, build up the capital stock, uh, whatever. So supply of savings is one side of the equation. But of course, yeah, lots of developing countries, okay, they're, they're, they're capital scarce. You'd think the rate of return on investments is really high. Uh, but in fact, it's not. And I'll elaborate on this a little bit more in a moment. Lots of developing countries, the, the investment opportunities don't appear to be there. So you want high investments, okay, it's difficult to get the supply of funds, but also possibly the investment opportunities to use these things uh, are not apparent, uh, shall I say, uh, not necessarily there. And in fact, in the data, you know, economic theory suggests capital should flow from capital-rich countries to capital-scarce countries. Of course, it doesn't, it flows the other way. It flows from the developing world to the, to the rich world. Uh, so once again, that's reflecting a kind of lack of lack of opportunities. And then, of course, okay, you've got to have you know, there's a supply of savings, demand for savings, savings. Um, you've got to be able to match the two. You've got to have financial intermediation, um, so that you know, people with savings can invest them in high return projects. Uh, lots of developing countries are lacking that, and of course, microcredit initiatives and things are really important in trying to fix that that problem. 
Okay, so there was a couple of comments on this sort of investment, right? Growth Commission 1, investment, future orientation. Growth Commission 2, macroeconomics markets, um, all that. I've lumped together a couple of points from that funny, unpleasant diagram. But the point, I've lumped them together to pick up this idea that investment, that, that returns on investment often look quite low. So developing countries need to do things to raise the return on investment, to increase the incentives for people to, 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 to make the investments. And let me run through a list of points here. What do we know about investment killers? Well, macroeconomic instability is surely an investment killer, right? If you don't know the rate of inflation, if you can have a balanced payments crisis, a financial crisis, whatever. So macro stability uh, is, is really important to raise rates of return. Other investment killers, yeah, if you don't know, if you think you're going to be preyed upon by someone, if your property rights are insecure, <coughs> then obviously you're not going to invest. A whole set of issues there, lots of developing countries, their legal systems you know, are inadequate, or at least very slow and they grind along so it's difficult to enforce contracts. Obviously some countries actual predation by the state um, through a tax system or less regular means. Uh, predation by local mafias, extreme cases, predation by conflict. And then slightly more, slightly different, but I, I think rather important point. Invest, I mean, a lot of African markets, African countries, very, very thin markets. So you make an investment, but there are only one or two people you can, you, you can track to it. You know, you've got to get your supply of inputs from only one firm. You're sending your output on to only one other, other firm. That makes you terribly vulnerable to being held up, to opportunistic behaviour on either side of the market there. In Britain, yeah, that's not true. There are lots, if, if you don't like trading with one person, you don't trade with someone else. But in these thin markets, that's not true. So all of this creates an insecurity that is investment killing. What else to improve the investment climate, so to get the rate of return of investment up? Uh, public goods uh, that are complementary to private investment, so infrastructure, health, education, all those things matter. And of course, a lot of countries have a legacy just of horrible barriers to setting up new businesses, um, bizarre sort of tax and subsidy uh, regimes and rules. Um, I'll talk a bit about dismantling, the problems in dismantling those later. But it's, if, if you've got this legacy of bad policies, excessive regulation, it's giving you this sort of bad business climate and killing, killing incentives to invest. Okay, so investment, supply and demand, investment climate to increase incentives there. What else from the Growth Commission? What, what other lessons that yeah, we need to think about? Integration in the world economy. That was one of their, uh, their, 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 their big points. The argument is as follows. One, comparative advantage. Um, let me not stand here and say comparative advantage. I've done that too many times in my life. I'm sure it's completely unnecessary. But yeah, being able to specialise in what you're good at and specialise on trade, so gains from that. As important, the role of openness in getting technology transfer ideas. And just to reflect on that for a moment, yeah, in some sense, you'd think developing countries should better grow really fast, because there's this, you know, it's taken 200 years, 300 years since the Industrial Revolution to generate all this technology, they can just you know, import it, plug it in straight away. But of course, well, it takes capital, which we've already talked about, but also it takes a sort of interaction, right, to get the technology transfer. So foreign direct investment is important. Migration flows 
and hopefully return migration flows uh, are important uh, in that. Another point about openness is that openness allows you to if, you, if you discover something you're good at, you can expand and expand and expand and yeah, supply the whole world market with shirts or underwear or whatever it may be. Whereas if you try doing that yeah, in one country, obviously you run into diminishing returns, the market's too small. I'm making this point because a lot of countries in the yeah, 60s and 70s um, yeah, tried to incentivize investment, get the investment climate going by import substitution policies. <coughs> and yeah, you can raise the rate of return on producing underwear by banning imports. Um, but of course, um, you run into diminishing returns, and that was very much the experience of the import substitution policies. Even big countries like Brazil, you know, fantastic, grew really fast for some decades, but it, it, it almost inevitably uh, peters out of skill. And um, sorry, what did I say? Um, runs into diminishing returns, um, it peters out. Whereas in the world economy, yeah, you can expand and expand and expand, and maybe even get increasing returns to managing costs as you're doing it. So integration, another big ingredient in the world economy, another big ingredient in, in, in the growth stories. Okay, uh, so there's some sort of key ingredient ingredients in getting the growth to get the poverty reduction. Let me just do another three or four slides, um, I think. Um, why is it so hard to do? Again, you know, I can map out, invest a lot, um, improve the investment climate, integrate in the world economy. Uh, we can all say that it's easy. So let me run through uh, a couple of slides on obstacles. Why do countries, some countries, most countries, find it so hard to do? Okay, point one, I suppose, I summarised it here, is geography, endowments, and trade. Yeah, it's absolutely fine for me to stand here and say integrate in the world economy. Uh, but if you're Rwanda or Chad or something, you know, what the hell does that mean? You're remote, you're landlocked, you've got bad infrastructure. You're transit countries, if you're landlocked, you've got bad infrastructure as well, so you're having to ship everything in by truck from Mombasa. And uh, yeah, saying integrate into the world economy is, is uh, yeah, so some countries really do have yeah, bad, bad geography. And you've probably seen in the press recently that uh, Rwanda's uh, the last kind of fiber optic cable, I think. So is uh, yeah, trying to integrate, you know, plug into the internet and get going, which is which is great. Although quite how many uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs might be created by that, I'm a little bit skeptical about. But anyway, uh, geography is not always working in your favour. Some countries, of course, have got very large uh, natural resource endowments, the oil producers and all that. Well, it, 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 in some way, that integrates them. You know, they're, they're exporting all this stuff. But of course, it tends to lead to sort of a bit of an enclave economy, the, the, the Dutch disease problem, that you've got one booming sector, the natural resource sector, that's generating all your foreign exchange, and other sectors wither somewhat uh, as a consequence. So other sectors that might be exporting, you know, the garments, textiles, apparel, whatever, uh, are withering. So. Um, Integration that way has often not been successful. Although notice that Botswana, which of course had diamonds, which has diamonds, has been enormously successful. Um, and there's a set of political and economic and, um, well, political problems um, in, in handling resource revenues, which I can say a little bit more later. So yeah, integration is hard. It's hard. 
It's hard because developed country trade policy remains problematic for all the uh, uh, noise that is made about everything but arms and um, all, these, all these other uh, trade initiatives. Uh, you, you all know about agricultural trade policy. But also there's a lot of, a lot of detail. Um, yeah, trade agreements have yeah, huge amounts of small print. So the things that are sold as good deals uh, yeah, are not always good deals. Um, there are factories in Africa that produce shirts using sort of Chinese um, fabric. Uh, they can sell those shirts in the States under the American African Growth and Opportunity Act. They cannot sell them in Europe because they're using Chinese. <coughs> so a lot of detail there. And of course, while we're talking about geography uh, uh, and endowments, um, it's worth a forwards you know, look on climate change. Um, they will be like technical regress rather than technical progress as, as conditions deteriorate uh, in, in many countries over the coming decades. So obstacle one was that. Obstacle two is, there's a bit of a catch-all here, it's the, uh, it, it, it's the size of the task, right? A lot of developing economies, just multiple, multiple market failures. Yeah, many, many problems running through different areas of the economy. And this is picking up a bit on some things we said already. Yeah, credit markets, financial intermediation matters. Um, but if you've just got a couple of lazy banks who really aren't doing any lending except the government, it's difficult. I mean, microcredit and things can, can fill the gap. But yeah, credit markets are often yeah, bad, as you know. Land markets. If you're trying to sort of grow urban centres, you know, probably haven't got proper titling, property rights might be ill-defined uh, in, in agriculture as well, so land market problems. Uh, barriers to entry, setting up uh, new firms, often very hard to do, partly because of this mess of, you know, funny old regulations, institutional you know, licensing requirements and things. Partly because, you know, if it's a, again, a small African country, the incumbent firms have got a very big incentive to keep out competition. Um, something that's less an incentive that's weaker in a big economy where there's already more competition. Uh, but small African economies, you've got this, these barriers to entry uh, of all sorts. And you've got a point here, increasing returns and coordination failure. When you compare the really successful countries with the unsuccessful countries, I think it is helpful to think in terms of virtuous circles, circles and vicious circles. Yeah, the virtuous circle is, you, know, you, you get growth go going. That generates expectations, and what drives investment? Well, you know, positive expectations. Right? Um, you get big supply networks, that thinness point about only being able to deal with a few people that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that, that goes away. Uh, you build up a, a skill base. So yeah, a lot of the Asian experiences are really getting into these virtuous circles, whereas the vicious circle is, well, it's, it's the converse of that, it's that stuff not happening. <coughs> And this idea of coordination failure, you know, why should one firm invest if it, the suppliers aren't there, the customers aren't there, you know, I'm, I'm not going to invest until you've invested and you're not going to invest until I've invested and you're in this um, vicious circle. Yes, it's a, it's a big agenda and, you know, the, the, the international institutions and donors sometimes come in and say, well, just do everything at once, okay, the Washington Consensus, which had a lot of merit to it but certainly uh, had, had problems as well. Um, 
and countries faced with this difficulty of how, how to prioritise when they've got such a, such a complex set of problems to face. Okay, I've gone through all this without saying, uh, without mentioning the word governments uh, to this point, I think, um, but clearly uh, have to uh, at some stage. All the this big set of issues, raising investment, investment climates, credit markets, land markets, <coughs> uh, how it is, it is it's difficult for governments to drive through reform agendas uh, on, 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 on those fronts for a number of reasons. I mean, one is simply limited government capacity. Um, it's you know, difficult enough in, 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 a, in a, well, as I used to say, in a country with a government economic service of a thousand economists or whatever it is, certainly uh, much more difficult in countries with smaller government economic services. But then, of course, you know, we have to think about the political realities in these countries. Now, yeah, it's fashionable to say, oh, bad governments is, is the root of everything. I, I don't find that very helpful. Um, governments are operating with multiple objectives uh, and in heavily constrained environments. You know, if, you're, if you're the government of some African country um, and you want to be re-elected, you might have to engage in patronage politics. And we don't like it, but you might have to. So you just have to think through all the constituencies that you have to keep on board if you are to stay in power, to drive through a reform agenda, right? And that is enormously difficult for the best intentioned uh, government uh, you, you, you could imagine, keeping all those players on board. So yeah, even, even well-intentioned governments, reforms that uh, yield, yield benefits, possibly for a majority of the population, it's difficult. There's, a, there's often a status quo bias. It's difficult to drive that political process of reform forwards. Yeah, obviously losers uh, resist uh, reform, reform that will make some people look better off, uh, but, but create losers. How do we usually get around that? Well, I suppose we get around it by offering to compensate. Now, that's not usually going to be a cash bonus. We're not going to say, oh, you lose, so we'll give you a thousand bucks to compensate you. It's by stringing together a sort of credible package of reforms. So you don't like this bit, but you will benefit from that bit, and you can see your way right through the reform process. Okay? That's what you need to do, and that's what I mean by a commitment to compensate. But of course, that's hard to do, right? You have to, there's promise of future reform, so you lose a bit on that one, but you gain a bit on that one, right? It's very hard to refer to, for governments to put together you know, credible, believable deals to, to buy the political uh, you know, space in which to drive through reforms. So resistance from losers, difficulty of you know, committing a process of growth and benefit for everyone, um, and a standard argument here, often with reforms, the losers who know who they are, uh, you know there will be gainers, but they don't know who they are, Therefore, if you just ask people to put their hands up whether they want the reform or not, yeah, no, no one will say they want it because the, the gainers can actually, you know, I know that 20 of you in this room will gain, but you don't know whether it's going to be you or someone else, so you're going to resist the reform. So a whole set of difficult political economy things. Which brings me to the last point that was in that growth commission um, sort of chart, five balls, whatever. <coughs> the role of leadership. Um, 
long-term commitment to growth, leaders who are really committed to taking a long view. So yeah, there's a difficult reform now, another difficult reform, but when we've done the whole package, uh, people will be better off. So having that long-term commitment, uh, that uh, staying with it, uh, navigating around obstacles, and of course also a commitment to inclusion. So there's no segment of society that thinks, well, even in 20 years we're going to be screwed by this because they're surely going to you know, destabilize the process. So there has to be a commitment to, to inclusion uh, coming, coming in the process as well. So that's a little bit just on the sort of political economy of, of, of why these things are so hard to do. <coughs> OK, let me, let, let me wrap up. Uh, top right there, you've seen before. What do I want to say by way of wrapping up? Okay, I've talked about you know, drivers of growth, uh, obstacles to getting through. But when you look at the record, oh, I've looked at the record once already. So, astonishing achievement in, in um, bringing about poverty reduction over the last couple of decades. Uh, every reason to believe that will, will continue in Asia. You know, obviously, China's performance coming out of the recession is, is, is quite remarkable. But the point I want to make here is that even in the countries that have been left out, uh, you know, Africa, basically, or the bottom billion, I suppose I should say, um, in recent years, even in these countries, there are very, um, very significant improvements <coughs> in you know, governance, quality of policy, and economic performance over the last eight or nine years or so. What I've put here is a chart. Now, it's slightly out of date because I was just rummaging around old files. And one thing that, when I was indifferent, that I tried to do was to actually make ministers think about economic growth. It wasn't always very easy, but I tried. Um, giving them facts in a sort of lead table-ish sort of way was, was one strategy. So these are different countries with their per capita growth, if yes, per capita again. Um, so the solid bars are yeah, 1997 to 2005, and that's, that's actually a two-year average. It's like a one-year So the blue bars are a shorter average. Now, these are the different countries, and we forget Asia. The point I want to make is this performance, this improvement in African performance over the last seven or eight years. Yeah, lots of countries that were going along at you know, one or two percent so you double the income in yeah, three generations or something. Uh, too slow for anyone to notice. A lot of countries that have ratcheted that up to three or four percent where per capita, where you're doubling income within a generation. So yeah, that, that begins to change expectations, begins to change attitudes. Yeah, in some cases it's it's bounced back from war, you know, Mozambique there. Other cases, yeah, Zimbabwe, clearly yeah, yeah, there will always be basket cases. But it's this mass of you know, Tanzania, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, these, these countries there that were have in the first you know, part of this, this, this decade uh, really ratcheted up their performance. So I would end on a moderately positive note about zero or whatever. Thank you.